Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, October the 2nd, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition uh, of our program. Uh, later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the ongoing struggle taking place in the West African state of Burkina Faso, where a military coup has led to attacks on the French embassy and other outposts of Paris. The current situation in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo is leading to further impoverishment and hunger. A United Nations peacekeeper has been killed uh, by gunmen in the Democratic Republic of Congo amid ongoing tensions between the population and the MONUSCO mission. And uh, the Egyptian government is continuing its work leading up uh, to the COP27 summit to be held in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, next month. In the second hour, we review the African National Congress Youth League Observer Delegation to the recent Elections are held in four provinces of Ukraine, now annexed uh, by the Russian Federation. We will hear additional speeches from last month's United Nations General Assembly, 77th session that was held in New York City. We will look back on the speeches delivered by Venezuela, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and uh, Senegal. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Yulu Mabila uh, Orchestra in Kamikaze uh, Public Congo. Let's listen in. <laughs> Oko kaki kaka obondela ngai Yomoko likaki ngai Napoli ngobobo Nani makina seya sonyo Yomoko sale lakinga Biblisi tenga mwasina yo Oko kaki kaka obondela ngai Nibale kombi ya sembewe loyo Toka bwani tomwe koza nai Oye misheri zalaka na rekone soko Yo vi makanga y pena vi makanga, 
African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October the 2nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And these are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Burkina Faso's uh, self-declared military leader, uh, Captain Ibrahim Traore, has accepted a conditional resignation offered by President Paul Henri Damiba uh, to avoid further violence after Friday's coup. Religious and traditional leaders uh, said this earlier today. According to the deal announced at a press conference, Traore had agreed to seven conditions, including a guarantee of Damiba's uh, safety and the security of soldiers who backed him and the honoring of promises made to the West Africa regional bloc to return to constitutional rule by July of 2024. Amoeba could not be reached for comment. A close family member told uh, the international press that he left 
the country earlier today. Traore said earlier that order uh, was being restored after protest against the French imperialist policies in the Sahel. Uh, the French embassy uh, was attacked. There have been uh, several days of fighting. Uh, and, of course, uh, this is uh, the atmosphere that has been created in the West Africa region. Splits have emerged, uh, according to some reports within the army, uh, with many soldiers appearing to seek support uh, from the Russian Federation as the influence of former colonial power France wanes, uh, to say the least. At least three separate videos shared online uh, yesterday, as well as today, showed soldiers atop armored personnel carriers. They were waving Russian flags while the crowd around chanted, Russia, Russia. And these uh, reports have been verified uh, by the international press. Uh, Traore's team urged people to halt attacks on the French embassy, targeted by protesters after an officer said France had sheltered Damiba at a French military base in the West African country and that he was planning a counteroffensive. The French foreign ministry denied the base had hosted Damiba after his outer on Friday. Damiba also denied he was at the base, saying the reports were a deliberate manipulation of public opinion. We want to inform the population that the situation is under control and order is being restored, an army officer said in a statement broadcast on national television. Another statement said Traore would continue to act as president until a transitional civilian or military president is designated in the coming weeks. While the Dubu was mostly calm uh, today, uh, there was sporadic gunfire across the capital uh, yesterday, and uh, it is not clear. Now, the Western press is attempting to suggest that it was a conflict within the army itself. Uh, Damiba himself uh, led a coup uh, earlier this year in January. Uh, he overthrew a civilian government that had lost support uh, as a result of the rising violence uh, by Islamic extremists. Damiba's failure to stop the uh, groups uh, that have been uh, wreaking havoc in Burkina Faso led to anger in the ranks of the armed forces in the former French colony. Divisions have emerged uh, within the army also over whether to seek help from other international partners to combat uh, the armed groups. Now, the soldiers who ousted Damiba uh, said the former leader whom they had helped to seize power in January reneged on a plan to seek other partners. did not name the partners. The observers and supporters said the soldiers were in closer partnership with the Russian Federation, as did the soldiers who seized power in neighboring Mali in August of 2020. Hundreds of people, some waving uh, Russian flags and supporting Traore's takeover, gathered in protest in front of the French embassy yesterday as well as today. Uh, they threw stones. Uh, they burned tires as well as debris uh, yesterday as well as earlier today. We want cooperation with Russia. We want the departure of Damiba and France. That's according to Alassane Timortore, uh, who was among the protesters. Anti-French demonstrators also gathered and stoned the French Cultural Center in the southern town of Bobo Giolasso. French business interests were also vandalized earlier today. Burkina Faso has become the epicenter of attacks carried out by groups linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, groups uh, which uh, some say 
including the Islamic Republic of Iran, were created uh, by the United States uh, government. After violence that began in neighboring Mali uh, a decade ago spread to other countries south of the Sahara, Uh, a decade ago was the aftermath of the AFRICOM, uh, Pentagon, Central Intelligence Agency, and NATO war against the North African state of Libya, which resulted in the overthrow of the Jamharia uh, government and the assassination and brutal assassination of uh, former leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, Since that time period, there's been instability and chaos throughout North and West Africa. The migrant crisis has become a political issue, even in Europe, uh, influencing the political trajectory of uh, Western European states. Thousands have been killed in raids on rural communities, and millions have been forced to flee despite Damiba's promises to tackle insecurity following his seizure of power in January. Last week, at least 11 soldiers died in an attack in northern Burkina Faso. Dozens of civilians are missing following the attack. And other news are from the West African state of Burkina Faso. The ousted coup leader has offered his resignation as long as his security and other conditions were met. And the new junta leader uh, who overthrew him has accepted the deal. Religious leaders mediating the West African nation's latest political crisis announced this earlier today. A junta spokesman later announced on state television that their leader, Captain Ibrahim Traore, uh, officially has been named head of state following the Friday uh, seizure of power that ousted Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Sandago Damiba. Their power grab uh, marked Burkina Faso's second military coup uh, within eight months, deepening fears that the political situation could divert attention uh, from an Islamic insurgency whose violence has killed thousands and forced two million people to flee their homes. This follows unrest in Ouagadougou, the capital, in which um, masses of youth uh, yesterday attacked the French embassy and other French-related sites, uh, believing that they were sheltering Damiba. The French embassy in Ouagadougou uh, was uh, vandalized and set alight. And this happened in other uh, areas of Burkina Faso as well, where uh, people uh, targeted uh, French uh, installations. Along with agreeing not to harm or prosecute him, Damiba also asked Traore and the new regime uh, to respect the commitments already made to the West African regional bloc, ECOWAS. Damiba, who came to power uh, in a coup uh, just in January, had recently reached an agreement to hold an election by 2024. President Henry, uh, Paul Henry uh, Sandago Damiba proposed his own resignation in order to avoid clashes. That's according to Hamadou Yamiogo, a spokesman uh, for the mediation efforts. Barore accepted the conditions. Religious leaders said that there was no immediate confirmation by Damiba himself of an official resignation. His whereabouts have remained unknown since the coup uh, on Friday evening. Amid the mediation, the new junta leadership also called for an end to the request and the unrest. In a statement broadcast on state television, uh, Captain Kiswin Zita, uh, Farouk Azario Sergo, called on people to, quote, desist from any acts of violence and vandalism, unquote. 
especially those against the French embassy or the French military base. Anti-French sentiment has risen sharply after the new uh, coup leaders alleged that the interim president, Damiba, was sheltering at a French military base following his ouster. France vehemently denied the allegation, but soon protesters with torches thronged the perimeter of the French embassy in Ouagadougou. Yesterday's uh, unrest was condemned uh, by the French foreign ministry. The French government denied any involvement in the rapidly developing events in Burkina Faso. French institutes in Ouagadougou and the country's second largest city, Bobo Giolasso, had also been targeted and French citizens were urged to be very cautious. The situation is very volatile in Burkina Faso, a French spokesman told the international press uh, earlier today. Damiba came to power in January, promising to secure the country from jihadi violence. However, the situation only deteriorated as jihadis imposed blockades on towns and have intensified attacks. Just last week, at least 11 soldiers were killed and 50 civilians went missing after a supply convoy was attacked by gunmen in Kaskendi commune in the Sahel. The group of officers led by Traore uh, said Friday, that Damiba had failed and was being removed. To some in Burkina Faso's military, Damiba also was seen as too cozy with former colonizers of France, which maintains a military presence in Africa's Sahel region to help countries fight Islamic extremists. Some who support the new coup leader, uh, Traore, have called on Burkina Faso's government to seek Russian Federation support as an alternative. Outside the state broadcaster on Today, earlier today, supporters of Traore were seen cheering and waving Russian flags. In neighboring Mali, the coup leader was, has invited Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group uh, to help with security, a move uh, that has drawn global combination from the world's imperialist countries. Uh, very little has been said uh, from uh, the countries of the so-called Global South. Conflict analysts uh, say Damiba was probably too optimistic about what he could achieve in the short term, but that a change at the top didn't mean that the country's security situation would improve. The problems are too profound, and the crisis is deeply rooted, said Hini Shabia, a senior researcher at the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project, adding that militant groups will most likely continue to exploit the country's political disarray. The international community widely condemned the ouster of Damiba, who himself overthrew the country's democratically elected president uh, earlier in 2022. The United States State Department spokesman Ned Price said the United States is, quote, deeply concerned by events in Burkina Faso, unquote. We call on those responsible to de-escalate the situation, prevent harm to citizens and soldiers, and return to a constitutional order, he said. The African Union and the West African Regional Bloc, known as the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, also sharply criticized these developments, urging the military to, quote, avoid escalation in all circumstances to protect civilians, unquote. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, conditions uh, have worsened despite uh, the presence of uh, the United Nations uh, peacekeeping mission in the country. 
Uh, there's been many protests against the presence of Manasco, uh, the United Nations uh, mission to uh, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And, of course, they have, at least in principle, announced that they are withdrawing uh, from this region. You can read details about this on uh, the Pan-African Newswire website. Also in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a Pakistani soldier serving as a United Nations peacekeeper was killed uh, in an attack in the country's volatile east. That's according to the military. A group of six uh, armed men reached the United Nations permanent operation base in the district of Menembe, ostensibly to surrender their weapons as part of a UN initiative. But the group's leader started firing indiscriminately. Pakistan's military said in a statement late Saturday, a Pakistani soldier serving as a guard at the weapons surrender point was shot in the head. The statement said, Pakistani peacekeepers responded to the fire immediately, it said, without offering details. The badly wounded soldier, identified only as a 35-year-old Babar, was rushed to the nearest Pakistani Army medical unit, where he later died. The United Nations identified the gunman in Friday's attack as suspected Tuniho combatants. The Pakistani military said they were linked to the Banya Mulenge, a Tutsi community in the eastern province of South Kivu. Pakistan is part of a United Nations peacekeeping force of more than 16,000 troops and police called the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUSCO. It began uh, some 12 years ago in July of 2010 and is aimed at protecting civilians, deterring armed groups, and helping build state institutions and services. In other news, uh, Egypt is preparing uh, to host uh, the upcoming COP27, a United Nations uh, climate conference that will take place in the resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. Of course, uh, Sameh Shukri, uh, Egypt's uh, foreign minister and president-designate of the 2022 United Nations Change Climate Change Conference, COP27, headed uh, uh, earlier today to the Democratic Republic of Congo to attend the first preparatory meeting for the conference. That's a pre-COP27. The meeting is part of painstaking efforts exerted by Egypt ahead of the Global Climate Conference, which will be held in the Red Sea Resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh uh, between November 6th and the 18th, said Foreign Minister Spokesman Ahmed Abu Zaid. The meeting is set to focus on the main issues that will be tackled during the COP27, including efforts to reduce carbon emissions, climate change adaptation, climate finance, and the adverse impacts of climate change, added the spokesman. On the sidelines of the meeting, Tukri is scheduled to attend the Climate Vulnerable Forum, according to the spokesman. The top Egyptian diplomat will also hold bilateral meetings with a host of ministers and envoys concerned with the climate issue. Tukri is also scheduled to meet with a number of Congolese officials to discuss relations between the two countries. Over the last two months, Egypt held five regional roundtables in its role as president of COP27 to catalyze investments in different climate sectors. And uh, that will conclude uh, this week's edition of the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal.
In concluding this segment of our program, I'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is the international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches, numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website uh, at um, the Pan-African Radio Network. And that is uh, located at um, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have uh, access uh, to this, uh, today's broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Uh, you can have access as well to well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Mata and the Vandellas, Detroit Zone, uh, Motown Sound with the tune entitled Nowhere to Run. And uh, there is nowhere to run uh, beyond the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October the 2nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now, we'd like to go uh, to a story uh, that is related uh, to a delegation from the African National Congress Youth League of South Africa uh, to the Lohans and Donetsk regions uh, for the recent referendum uh, in uh, those regions to merge uh, with the Russian Federation. Let's listen to this interview with the African National Congress uh, Youth League on their trip. Welcome back. Russia has been holding controversial referendums in regions it controls in Ukraine. It is asking the people of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia if they want to be part of Russia. And it has indicated it will annex the regions if the voting outcome is favorable. However, Ukraine and its Western allies have rejected the polls as a sham and say they will reject whatever fabricated outcome Russia announces. Now, it has emerged that several members of the ANC Youth League task team have been observing the referendum. Last year, the ANC appointed the National Youth Task Team to revive the ANC Youth League that had been disbanded earlier. So to discuss, we're joined by Kulakane Skosana, ANC Youth League National Youth Task Team International Relations Officer. He's speaking to us from Crimea. Uh, thank you for, for being with us, uh, Mr. Skosana. How many task team members are there um, and were you invited or did you uh, put your hands up as it were? Uh, we are uh, three, um, the, the ones that you would have uh, seen on commentary and um, yes um, we were invited here but even if we were not invited probably would have raised our hands as a, a youth movement. Um, okay. We think that we are living in uh, trying times, and it, it, it's important that uh, just like uh, uh, our forefathers who fought for democracy in our country, we must be steadfast in uh, going to find uh, information on our own, fact-finding mission. In the same manner that uh, the Democratic Alliance went on a fact-finding mission in Ukraine, uh, there's nothing wrong with the ANC going to observe. And the function, the function of observing is exactly that to observe to observe does not mean you are taking a political stance it means that you are there to see for yourself whether the information that is uh, being spread in the media and so on is true yeah and what we have All witnessed right. is that may, the people of uh, thank you i was going to okay. say what have you witnessed because uh, some of the reports are, are very unfavorable international reports saying there are strong signs of coercion uh, russian soldiers going door to door and and telling people they have to vote and then uh, the voting happening while soldiers are watching uh there's nobody that we observed being forced uh, to go vote we did not see uh, anyone being compelled and people are voting out of their own solution. If anything, uh, when voting stations close, they, you still have people outside who still want to uh, cast their vote. Uh, and the attempts of sabotage on the vote uh, uh, did not uh, work because the people uh, want self-determination. I think uh, just like in the past, when we wanted our freedom, we were called uh, terrorists. I mean, the people who glorify Mandela today, 
They used to call him a terrorist. And then um, we find the situation to be the same here. We are being mm -hmm. told that Russia is forcing people to vote. And that is a, the opposite. The people uh, have, been, have been receiving bombs and attacks uh, for a long time. And you can feel it that these people really have been existing in a traumatic uh, experience. And uh, this for them is a solution they've been looking forward to. And uh, uh, we are proud to have uh, come to witness uh, uh, this process. So the but people were not compelled and uh, they were voting freely. All right. Uh, but Mr. Skusana, I'd like to challenge you on something you said earlier, that you're just there to observe. Uh, because it does seem that you and uh, the, the other members are actively, in fact, supporting the process. Uh, so Stella Mondlane, she's a task team uh, member, I understand, uh, quoted as saying that for a long time people have been deprived of this opportunity to reunite with the country that uh, they've always been a part of. Surely that's taking a stance on Russia's claim to parts of Ukraine. Uh, government stance in South Africa has been more neutral. Uh, I'd like to know from you, have, have these statements uh, been condoned by the ANC, uh, the, the mothership as it were, and does government know of, of your attendance as observers? Um, I think if you have questions for the ANC or if you have questions for the government, you need to ask them. We are the ANC Youth League. And, uh, what, did, uh, did, you, did you run it by the ANC? Did, did you tell the ANC that you were going? The ANC Youth League is an autonomous uh, organization. We exist uh, under the constitution of the ANC, but we have uh, the right to decide on our own. As long as we live within the ethos, the founding ethos of the ANC Youth League. We are young people of the African National Congress. And fortunately, in the ANC, we are allowed to think for ourselves. We are allowed to look for ourselves and to go seek information. And uh, we have not taken sides here. I think uh, we have not been invited to go observe in Ukraine. But if we were, we would probably uh, most likely have went. And uh, we want to say that the Democratic Alliance uh, released a scathing attack on the ANC Youth League. Uh, saying that we use state funds. There were no state funds used here. If anything, it is the Democratic Alliance which used state funds to sell, send Solim Simang uh, to Taipei and contravening mm. international law, contravening official decisions of South Africa. If anything, the Democratic Alliance went to Israel uh, to, to observe the perspective of Israel on, on, on the conflict, but they did not go to Palestine. So if anyone is taking sides here. It's a democratic alliance which only does observation of their friends. We want All to right, say if, that... If we, can, uh, if we can stick to your um, uh, role as observers, you say you're neutral, but you do support uh, Russia's claim on these territories. Am, am I correct in saying that? We support the right of the people of Donbass and the people of Crimea uh, behind self-determination. Mm. Uh, self-determination is enshrined in the United Nations. And everyone who, anyone who believes in democracy must subscribe to self-determination. Okay, but that seems to go further. Um, Venus Lorato Blianis, who is said to be the chair of a regional branch um, of, of your task team of the ANC Youth League, says that uh, this, this was a quote from Russian media so, uh, that, that was reported here, just like your response, said that 80% of South Africans support the residents of Donbass, Kherson and Zipporizizia in their desire to unite 
with Russia. Uh, where would a stat like that come from? Do you know, saying that 80% of South Africans uh, s support uh, these people being united with Russia? She is a leader of uh, uh, young people in South Africa, as you have mentioned. Actually, she's not a regional leader. She's a provincial leader of the Northern Cape, uh, Northern Cape uh, uh, province. And uh, for us to come here and observe uh, means that we must echo the sentiments we are, we are hearing on the ground. And the overwhelming sentiment we are hearing on the ground in Donbass is that people want to vote and they want to determine for themselves where they must go. And if the people have been saying they want to be part of Russia, that's exactly what we'll communicate and say we are finding on the ground because we need to observe. And if uh, Vina said that, that means it's what she has observed. Uh, I want to also say that in respect to South Africans uh, supporting uh, 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 the people of Donbass, we stand in solidarity with all the oppressed people of the world. It's not just in Donbass. We stand with people of Palestine, Western Sahara. We will always stand with those who are oppressed and those who don't have anyone to defend them. The revolution will not be televised. That's why we want to, to see for ourselves as young people of the, of the liberation movement of President Nelson Mandela, but, who taught us that freedom for some is not yeah. freedom. So but we cannot but see... Kostana, if, if you support uh, the right of all people, the right to self-determination, that, that's what you said. What would you say if, if people in the Western Cape pushed for a referendum and uh, a cessation from South Africa? Would you support that and say that they should have self-determination? Uh, what, what about the people the, of Orania who want to have their own uh, self-governance? government? Yes, I'm saying to you that people who want self-determination must be given that opportunity to test whether they can form a country if they want to form a country. We, if you Cape Torians feel that they want to form a country, they can try it. But I don't think that will ever happen because people of Cape Town want to be part of South Africa. But I'm saying that a referendum is a... It's something, is a human right that is enshrined in the United Nations and anyone in the world that wants self-determination has that right. Uh, but uh, uh, in the context of uh, the examples that you made, uh, we have not seen any evidence of such. I think it is only you, the media, who speak of such. The people of uh, Western Cape uh, want to be part of, of Orania. I mean, they want to be part of uh, South Africa. Uh, uh, all right, I, I was Cape, using an be... example um, to see if you, you believe that right extends to people within South Africa who don't support the government here. The Ukrainian Association of South Africa says it's shocked about your involvement. It says about 12 million people um, have had to flee because of the Russian invasion. So they won't be voting, uh, the people who obviously would vote against a referendum. Um, uh, what is your response to that? Can the voting be fair if many people have, have left? Uh, uh, apparently, uh, for fear. Uh, the situation we witnessed there is that uh, it was safe uh, and the people were comfortable uh, in voting. Those who did not uh, come to vote, uh, it is out of their reasoning. And that's exactly, that goes to prove our point that nobody was compelled to vote. And if people chose not to come and vote, that is their decision. But those who wanted to vote were given that opportunity in a safe, transparent, in uh, a fair manner. I think uh, it's that simple. Even in South Africa, nobody forces anyone to vote. If you want to sit at home and you don't want to vote, to vote you have that right. But if you want to participate in a democratic process, uh, you then go and vote. That, that's exactly democracy.
uh, you choose whether you participate or don't. So we cannot speak for those who did not participate. That is their choice, and it must be respected as well. All right, so, so you are saying, uh, let's wrap this up, that if you had seen any sign uh, that would make this referendum illegitimate, um, you, you would have called that out? We would have definitely called it out uh, because that's uh, the reason we are here. We are here as uh, young people of the ANC, which is a, a non-aligned uh, movement. We are here to see for ourselves uh, what uh, we are being told on television. And what we have witnessed here is that the people of Donbass have been longing for more than eight years to have a chance to decide for themselves. Uh, you know, democracy that does not involve the people is not democracy. So for uh, the regime in, in Kiev to say that uh, people, that organization that you mentioned, for them to say that uh, people uh, who would have voted negatively or against the referendum did not necessarily have the chance, yeah. it is because the Ukraine government continued uh, to bomb. Even when we were, uh, we, we, we were here while observing, they continued to bomb civilians. Uh, we witnessed this with our own We did not hear this from TV. We were there and uh, we were under threat from Ukrainian bombs. If they have every intention of allowing people to speak for themselves, why did they fail to allow people to vote and, 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 and choose whether uh, they want to vote or not? If, All right, if the and people in Donbass finally, were under threat today, it, they were under threat because of Ukrainian shelling that we saw for ourselves. Ukraine Mr. is bombing Donbass. Even if the, the voting was held freely and, and fairly, um, are you at all concerned that, that your attendance, that the vote um, and, and you being there and being quoted in Russian media is being used to help Russia legitimize the annexation of Ukrainian territory, uh, which many believe is against international law? So, so you mentioned a constitution. I, I, I don't know what constitution you're referring to because for many the issue here is that Russia would be transgressing international law. Uh, I did not hear you clearly. Please, if it, if it. Uh, are you at all concerned uh, that Russia could be transgressing international law by using this referendum to annex parts of Ukraine and that your attendance as observers is being used to help Russia legitimize that annexation? Russia uh, has given the people of Donbass a chance to speak for themselves. Uh, and I repeat, democracy in its definition is by the people, for the people. Everyone is talking and talking, but nobody actually is concerned about what the people are saying. This referendum is an opportunity for the people to speak for themselves. Our, our coming here to observe is not a, an endorsement or support for, for Russia. Our coming here to observe is, to, is a support and endorsement for the people of Donbass for self-determination. And us coming here does not necessarily legitimize uh, the, 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 the referendum. What legitimizes the referendum is the participation of the people of Donbass and the people of Crimea, which we have seen uh, their overwhelming uh, participation. Right. What you are saying, what you are saying uh, also is like saying when uh, the DA went to Israel, uh, they went there to support the bombing of uh, Palestine. Uh, we, we came here to observe, and we oh. came here to get information for ourselves, and we've done so. And now we know the real situation of the people of Donbass, and not what we're told on television. 
All right, thank you very much. Uh, Kulikanis Kusana, ANC National uh, Youth Task Team International Relations Officer. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion uh, on the African National Congress Youth League of South Africa delegation as observers uh, to the recent elections uh, held in Lugas and Abbas, uh, areas uh, where now uh, the Russian Federation has an incorporated to make consider an attack on those regions as an attack on the Russian Federation. And uh, right now we want to go uh, to the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela address uh, to uh, the United Nations General Assembly 77th session that was held uh, during late September. Uh, we're going to hear the foreign minister of uh, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And I now give the floor to His Excellency, Carlos Rafael Faria Tortosta, Minister of the People's Power for Foreign Affairs of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Carta, letter from the Pres President Maduras to the peoples of the world. Good afternoon to all those present from the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela on behalf of the constitutional president, Nicolas Maduro. We extend a welcome, a brotherly welcome, to the presidents, heads of state and government, and prime ministers of the 193 countries that make up the United Nations organization in the same way. We would like to greet the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and also Dr. Chaba Kiaroshi, President of the General Assembly of the United Nations and the other authorities present here at the 77th Annual General Assembly. And we wish you every success in the, this important exchange of ideas for timely and collective action to face our common problems. I'd like to take the time allotted to me in this forum on behalf of the 30 million Venezuelan men and women to uh, send an open letter to humanity because I don't think that anything else would give proper meaning to a governor of the 21st century, particularly at such a crucial time for the world when what we need is more leadership for the peoples in order to create alternatives to transform our reality. We've never been so aware that we are one single community one and very many at the same time as we are aware now in this uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Life itself. This letter comes from the heart of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, a country that a lot of people have heard, us, have heard people talk about, but paradoxically not very many people um, know much about its genuine political truth, its historic identity and its concrete reality. Certainly, 
a pernicious global campaign has been woven to discredit and stigmatize our people, our republican institutions, and our democratic revolution for the simple fact of having challenged the power structures of the last century and the single way of thinking that has placed the world under the mask of the market economy and the neoliberal globalization, a model which has become the modern version of colonialization, supposedly in the name of liberty. The aim of this campaign against Venezuela is nothing more than to create objective conditions to politically and economically choke any attempt to create alternatives to an imperialistic and depredatory system, which is capitalism that we've seen in all, all its historical phases. Imponing a false narrative on us, they accuse us of being a dictatorship and a failed state in order to hide the truth from the world. Uh, over the last two decades, in my country, we have held 29 free elections that have defined our social, economic, and political model that we have called Bolivarian Socialism. This is the reason why we have been attacked in very many different ways. The people of the world should know that Venezuela has experienced all attempts to destabilize our democracy. Politically, imperialism has failed in its uh, illegal way of trying to bring about regime change, change including assass attempted assassination, invasion. They have created seditious movements against the Constitution, and they have even invented a fictitious parallel government which bordered on the ridiculous. Economically, not many know that in this small but dignified country, are applying to us are 913 illegal sanctions, which in summary prevent my people from buying and selling what they produce and what they need for their development and in order to enjoy our individual and collective existence. This specifically leads to suffering, to privation, and to systematic aggression that restricts the life and collective rights of my country, and that's why we must denounce these cruel measures as crimes against humanity. This economic war, the losses of which for my country exceed $150 billion over the last few years, increased during the most serious period of the pandemic, making it impossible for us to buy medical supplies, um, medicines and uh, vaccines. The stigmatization has also served the purposes of Europe and the United States as an excuse to further uh, pillage our heritage and our assets abroad to a disgusting extent more than 31 tons of Venezuelan gold deposited in the Bank of England, calculated at $1.3 billion, is held hostage. The robbery of the Citgo Petroleum Corporation company, valued at more than uh, $10 billion, 
in February is another fact that is added to the uh, $10 billion deposited um, in foreign banks that are illegally blocked. But these illegal sanctions have never been able to break the will of our people, but they have uh, strengthened our awareness and our, and our determination to be free. They have not taken us away from our path either towards social justice, even in the worst circumstances. Our model protects and prioritizes the individual and their social rights, access to housing, education, health, work and culture. This act of piracy against our homeland, nevertheless, has left deep wounds in society. Amongst them, forced migration that we hear about, um, but with political and propagandistic um, ends in the media. Nothing is said, however, about the 60% of the Venezuelan population that migrated, but that has voluntarily returned to their country, fleeing the conditions of slavery and exploitation, as well as the mistreatment and persecution that they have been subjected to in very many countries of the world. We're also hiding, this also hides from the world the fact that the Venezuelan state is the only state that has a policy of repatriation through our airline, Conviasa, which is consistently boycotted by illegal sanctions. We'd like to ask multilateral organizations, what's happened to the millions of resources that were supposed to be there to help Venezuelan migrants? It would be useful to have some sort of accountability in order to explain the situation with regard to where this money has gone. In the same way, we call upon multilateral organizations to guarantee the rights of all migrants throughout the world, and we do this with the moral authority of being a country that for more than a hundred years has been, has been exercising good practices towards the migrant population. Uh, along these lines, we would warn the peoples of the world uh, about the outbreak of xenophobia and rejection of the poor, hate crimes and hate speech and general intolerance incubated by neo-fascist and neo-Nazi movements that find a home in uh, ultra-conservative parties and governments of the far right. Humanity that is listening to us today needs to know that the most extreme conditions that we have mentioned here have not meant that our people have surrendered. On the contrary, we have built our path towards social peace, economic recovery, and the strengthening of democracy. We know ourselves very well what adversity is and the miracles that come from Willing, willingness and one's own efforts. We're working towards social peace and we have implemented an economic plan to address the embargo, opening up new sources of wealth such as tourism, national industrialization, entrepreneurship and farming development. For the first time in 120 years, we are producing 80% of what we consume. 
So we can affirm that we are able to pull our efforts together in order to face the great threats that are facing the world. We are one of the major global powers in the area of oil and gas production. Venezuela can and wants to be useful as a member of OPEC in this energy emergency that we have seen now for more than a decade and which is very much uh, affecting the system of prices and supply and having an impact on the poorest countries and also on the richest. The COVID-19 pandemic and the conflict between Ukraine and Russia is worsening the situation dramatically. But over and above this historic position of guaranteeing, as we uh, are a very important producer uh, in terms of energy balance, we are concerned by the impact of various global conflicts uh, and how that affects food security. Venezuela has 30 million farmable hectares, and we are convinced that only by returning to sustainable agriculture will it be possible to overcome hunger and global poverty. We are making available our abilities in the firm conviction that we need to work actively in searching for global solutions. Undoubtedly, all nations are affected by various problems, each of them very complex and very serious, so much so that it's difficult to establish a hierarchy with those problems. But perhaps of all those problems, the most important one is that of global peace and security, today severely undermined by the events that all that have spoken before me have mentioned. Irrespective of ideological positions, we must agree on the need to give a priority to the re-establishment of the diplomatic path, political dialogue, over and above military confrontation. Humanity will not survive a world war. No, we will not survive a world war in any part of the world. For my country, a people that has never participated in an armed international conflict, there is no other path other than peace, justice, trust, and respect for international law. We therefore agree with the proposal of President Andres Manuel López Obrador, who advocates for the creation of an international commission to facilitate sovereign dialogue between Russia and Ukraine. And we are there to facilitate this process. We reject all military provocations and, and uh, economic sanctions that have been taken against Russia, as well as the hate campaign that has been launched against the Slavic people, because we believe these actions, rather than helping peace, incite the, the guns of war. In the eyes of my country, and I'm sure that a lot of peoples would agree with me, there are no good and bad wars. After the invasion by the United States of Afghanistan in 2001, trust was lost in the inter international community. Um, what was being followed was imperialism and supremacism. We saw blood shed unnecessarily with impunity in Iraq, Yemen, Haiti, Somalia, Libya 
and Syria. Just to mention a few milestones in this shameless tragedy that is laying waste to indispensable international law. Nevertheless, in Venezuela we have reasons to be optimistic. We have learnt to trust in peoples, in their intelligence, in their benevolence, and in their adherence to justice and true life. But we have to recognize that the dominant global order is facing multiple crises that are competing in their lethal potential, but they are, and they are interrelated. The climate crisis is worsening the food crisis. The health crisis is making worse the social crisis. The energy crisis is worsening as we see a worsening of the economic crisis and this is threatening global peace. And across the board we have the non-less uh, non pernicious crisis of truth with the pollution of the news media and fake news. We are seeing a system of representation, prevarication and suppression of reality that is imposed by algorithms of new technologies of, in, of communication, uh, this for the convenience of the most powerful. The manipulation of information and emotions is only part of the problem. We're seeing a global uh, security surveillance state that deprives citizens of privacy, true information, making our democracies, turning our democracies into infocracies as was stated by the South Korean uh, philosopher Byung-Chun Han in his recent book. The death of the truth is the most clear symptom of the decline of a civilization and the preamble to perpetual conflict. Let us not allow uh, truth to die at this historic moment when we have so many possibilities to apply truth together with reason and uh, common sense. This is the antidote to collapse the peoples of America, Europe, Asia, Africa and Oceania know that in this multidimensional crisis, given its transcendental and definitive nature, we have to approach this with humanity, getting to the heart of the problem. Where is the fault line that m will uh, make this imperial order uh, waver, collapse? In this imperial world which denies attacks and attempts to suppress the other, to suppress difference, and does not recognize other models, other political, economic, and religious and cultural uh, paradigms that are different to its own. In spite of the arrogance of the West, we are seeing a change in the post-imperial order and the, the North must rec recognize that the unipolar uh, colonialist system cannot adequately respond to the problems and needs that they themselves have created, uh, harming humanity, animal life and the planet. According to our vision of the world, Human beings are the most exploited, vulnerable, and destroyed by capitalism in all of its historic phases. We are not just making uh, any old ideological statement. The climate crisis is now irreversible. So this tells us that we need to change the model. The North needs to accept 
new powers and new leadership such as China, Russia, India, Iran, Turkey. They have to open up to the possibility of being part of a multipolar, multi-center world free of hegemony. It is urgent that there be an ethical change amongst the powers in order to build a common world without uh, colonizers or, or the colonized where we work together towards solutions, the solutions that our peoples demand of us. There is no time uh, for super uh, powers and unnecessary confrontations. For 207 years in very similar circumstances, the uh, freedom fighter Simon Bolivar in his letter from Jamaica referred to uh, the, uh, the doctrine of the, of the West. Civilized Europe that wants, is allowing an old snake to uh, devour the best part of our globe and he continued Is Europe deaf to its own interests? And in this regard, President Nicolas Maduro asked himself, is the leadership in Europe and North America deaf? We ask ourselves today uh, about this crisis and whether it could be the last crisis for humanity. Venezuela hopes that in this assembly we will listen to reason, um, to prudence, and that we recognize and respect the rights of the peoples of the world and that we address the injustice being committed against the Sahrawi people and the Palestinian people by denying them the right to have their homeland. And we hope that we will put an end to illegal san economic sanctions and political persecution against Nicaragua and against our brotherly Cuba, Iran and Russia. We uh, pray that um, the Argentinian people will be able to regain their sovereignty over the Malvinas. Only dialogue can do this. Only words and reason shared between equals will be able to uh, build the bridges that we need in order to heal these wounds and leave um, behind these uh, things that terrorize humanity. I write this message not simply for the summit, but I am thinking about the streets where men and women walking around New York, Istanbul, London, Damascus, Ramallah, Tehran, uh, Cape Town, Moscow, Mos Moscow, Beijing, Managua, Havana, Caracas, and very many more places, they are not looking for responses, but they want to be part of the building of a new humanity. And because I believe in the power of words and because I believe in this man and in this woman that refuse to give up hope, I am sure that this assembly uh, will not remain in a vacuum. I recognize that this global hegemony is coming to an end and we need the necessary enthusiasm to build a new multicentric, multipolar, intercultural and balanced world. Let us change what needs to be changed and let's have the courage to uh, 
be reborn in new times and new challenges. Another world, another life is not only possible, but more than ever before today, it is a matter of urgency. Caracas, the 24th of September of 2022, Nicolas Maduro Moros. Thank you very much. I thank the Minister of the People's Power for Foreign Affairs of Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And uh, that was uh, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela uh, representative, uh, Foreign Minister for Popular Power, uh, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly 77th session that was held uh, late last month in New York City. Right now, let's go to uh, the chairman of the African Union, the 55-member state uh, organization that represents uh, the governments of 1.3 billion people on the African continent. The current chairman of the African Union is uh, Senegalese President Macky Sall. Uh, Let's listen in. Well, let's cross now live uh, to the United Nations in New York, where the Senegalese president, Macky Sall, is just starting to speak. Carries out his delicate mission in this service of member states. Since our last session, the world has become more dangerous and more uncertain under the combined grip of global warming, security and health perils, and the war in Ukraine. The theme of this session reflects the urgent need to act together to ease tensions, to heal our planet, reduce persistent north-south inequalities, and reinstate the importance of multilateralism. The Security Council is called upon to address this first and foremost to make sure that all threats to international peace and security, including in Africa, are handled in the same way. Terrorism, which is gaining ground on the continent, is not just an African matter. It is a global threat that falls under the primary responsibility of the Council as it is the guarantor of the collective security mechanism under the charter of our organization. We, therefore, urge the Council to engage more with us in the fight against terrorism in Africa and to do this with more appropriate mandates and more substantial resources. Furthermore, the African Union once again calls for the lifting of foreign sanctions against Zimbabwe. These harsh measures continue to fuel a sense of injustice against against an entire people and to aggravate their suffering in these times of deep crisis. In the Middle East, we reiterate the right of the Palestinian people to a viable state 
living side by side in peace with the State of Israel, each within secure and internationally recognized borders. We call for a de-escalation and a cessation of hostilities in Ukraine, as well as for a negotiated solution to avoid the catastrophic risk of a potentially global conflict. The negotiations and discussions are the best tools we have to promote peace. I launch an appeal to put together a high-level mediation mission to which the African Union stands ready to contribute. Nearly 80 years after the birth of the United Nations system and the Bretton Woods institutions, it is time for a fairer, more inclusive global governance that is more adapted to the realities of our time. It is time to overcome the reticence and to deconstruct the narratives that persist in confining Africa to the margins of decision-making circles. It is time to heed Africa's just and legitimate demand for Security Council reform, as reflected in the Ezulwini consensus. In the same vein, I reaffirm our request for the African Union to be granted a seat in the G20 so that Africa can finally be represented where decisions that affect 1,400,000,000 Africans are being taken. I would like to extend my warmest thanks to the partners who have already expressed their support and invite others to give favorable consideration to our candidacy. With respect to economic and financial governance, I draw the attention of the General Assembly to the 2022 Financing for Sustainable Development Report, produced by some 60 multilateral institutions, including the IMF, the World Bank, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the International Association of Insurance Regulators and the Financial Stability Board. This report highlights shortcomings in the assessment processes of credit rating agencies and underlines the importance of transparent methodologies so as not to undermine confidence in ratings. We are concerned by the fact that the perception of risk in Africa continues to be higher than the actual risk, which increases the cost of insurance premiums and undermines the competitiveness of our economies. And this is why Africa is renewing its proposal to the Global Crisis Response Group on Food, Energy and Finance to engage 
In conjunction with the G20, the IMF, and the World Bank, in a constructive dialogue with the ratings agencies on improving their working and assessment methods. In the same spirit, given the unprecedented scale of the global economic crisis, the African Union reiterates its call for the partial reallocation of special drawing rights so needed for the developing countries first and foremost and the implementation of the G20 Debt Service Suspension Initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, the unprecedented shock further destabilizes the weakest economies and makes their need for liquidity ever more pressing so as to mitigate the effects of widespread inflation and support the most vulnerable households and social strata, especially the young people and women. In addition to that, there is the need to address new and old health emergencies, including cancer, the silent killer that continues to claim millions of lives across the world. I call for a general mobilization in favor of the International Atomic Energy Agency's Ray of Hope campaign to strengthen the capacities of member countries, particularly in Africa, in the fight against cancer using nuclear technologies such as medical imaging, nuclear medicine, and radiotherapy. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, with the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt only a few weeks away, Africa reiterates its commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. At the same time, we wish to reach a consensus for a fair and equitable energy transition as was called for at the Africa-Europe Summit last February at the enlarged session of the G7 Summit in June and recently at the Africa Adaptation Finance Forum in Rotterdam. It is legitimate, fair and equitable that Africa, the continent that pollutes the least and lags furthest behind in the industrialization process should exploit its available resources to provide basic energy so as to improve the competitiveness of its economy and achieve universal access to electricity. I will recall that today more than 600 million Africans still live without electricity. Let us also work towards the goal of mobilizing 100 billion US dollars per year to support developing countries' adaptation efforts and to finance the African Adaptation Acceleration Program 
under the auspices of the African Development Bank and the Global Center for Adaptation. Moreover, we see adaptation funding not as aid, but rather as a contribution by industrialized countries to a global partnership of solidarity in return for efforts made by developing countries to avoid the polluting patterns that have plunged the planet into the current climate emergency. Mr. President, over and above the current emergencies, I have come to convey the message of a continent determined to work with all of its partners in a relational ethic of a dialogue of confidence and trust and mutual respect. I have come to say that Africa has suffered enough of the burden of history, that it does not want to be the place of a new Cold War, but rather a pole of stability, an opportunity open to all of its partners on a mutually beneficial basis. I have come to say that we do not ignore that Africa, faced with challenges uh, which need to be pacified and stabilized, but I have also come to say that we also have Africa as a provider of solutions with an area of 30 million square kilometers, its human resources, with its more than 60% of the world's arable land, its mineral, forest, water, and energy resources. Yes, we have the Africa of solutions with governments on the job on a daily basis. We have a vibrant and creative young people who innovate, who are entrepreneurial and who succeed. We have millions of men and women who work hard to feed, educate, and care for their families, who invest, who create wealth, and who generate jobs. This Africa of solutions wants to engage with all of its partners in a reinvented relationship that trans transcends the prejudice that whoever is not with me is against me. We want a multilateralism that is open and respectful of our differences because the United Nations system, born out of the ashes of war, can only win the support of one and all on the basis of shared ideals and not local values erected as universal norms. It is by working together, respecting our differences, that we will restore the strength and vitality of the United Nations raison d'etre, which is to save present and future generations from the scourge of war to advance the peaceful coexistence of peoples and to foster progress by 
creating better living conditions for all. I wish the 77th session of the General Assembly every success. I thank you for your kind attention. Uh, that was uh, the chairman of the African Union, the president of Senegal, uh, Mackie Saul, uh, speaking before uh, the United Nations uh, General Assembly uh, meeting, the 77th session that was held uh, just late last month. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. And uh, we are here uh, on... Sunday, October 2nd, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'll take a break, and we'll be back uh, with more of our program.
the voice of uh, Donna Hightower uh, with the track entitled If You Hold My Hand to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 2nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to go to uh, the address uh, delivered uh, by uh, the President of the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo, uh, President Chester Katie, uh, let's listen in at the United Nations General Assembly 77th session uh, held late last month in New York City. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Felix Antoine Chilombo, Detective, President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of the General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome His Excellency Felix Antoine Silombo Tsisekdi, President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, to invite him to address the General Assembly. Monsieur le Président de... Mr. President of the United Nations General Assembly, Mr. Secretary General of the United Nations, Ladies and gentlemen, heads of state and government, ladies and gentlemen, heads of delegation, it is a great honor and a genuine pleasure for me to take the floor from this rostrum to ensure that the voice of my country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, is heard on the primary questions occupying the international community at present. Mr. President, I would nevertheless at the outset like to congratulate you on your election to the presidency of the 77th session of the United Nations General Assembly. I am convinced that you will do your best to ensure the success of this session and I would like to ensure you that, assure you that you have my country's full support. Mr. President, the major challenges facing humanity at the moment are the following. Peace and security for all. Controlling climate change. Relaunching the global economy post-COVID-19. Combating poverty and promoting collective well-being. These major challenges are complex and intimately interlocking. Aware of this reality, I commend the very judicious choice and the relevance of the theme of this session, a watershed moment, transformative solutions to interlocking challenges. Clearly, overcoming these challenges will require working greater in concert, will require greater cooperation and greater solidarity between states and nations. The maintenance of international peace and security is the foundation and the primary objective behind the creation of the United Nations. Neither indifference nor uh, impetus on its part 
are therefore acceptable in the face of uh, any threat to international peace and security. At present, the question of international peace and security is crystallizing around the fight against terrorism as well as calming hotbeds of tension in Europe and in Africa. Indeed, terrorism has spared no continent after Asia, Eastern Europe and North America. It is metastasizing in Africa where it has caused conflagration in many places and our continent is paying a heavy price for that in the Sahel, in the east, in the west, in the, in the center and in the south of the continent, terrorists are killing through barbaric exactions against innocent populations and destabilizing states in the name of religious fundamentalism. Some remarkable progress has been made in the Middle East in the fight against this scourge which is uh, growing, was growing in, in power, but this scourge is far from being extinguished and far from being eradicated from our planet. For that reason, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, one of the African victims of this terrorism and a member of the global coalition against Islamic State, calls upon the United Nations to become actively involved in the, implementations of the implementation of the recommendations of this coalition and the Aqaba process. Statements of intention and proclamations of faith without any vigorous collective action on the ground will never be enough to eradicate terrorism. Mr. President, at the heart of Europe, the war between Russia and Ukraine is a gaping wound, the blood of which is reaching faraway Africa and disrupting international trade due to significant collateral damage, particularly when it comes to the provision of cereal crops and energy from Ukraine and Russia, which are needed to feed populations and to ensure the functioning of the economies of importer countries. It is essential that the United Nations intervene diligently and more firmly to extinguish this flame with absolute respect for the rules of international law. The Democratic Republic of the Congo supports the position of the African Union and calls on all parties to the conflict to pursue the path of dialogue and law as acknowledged by Africa, which incidentally does have experience in managing security crises provoked by armed groups in some of its states. On this subject, the United Nations know that my country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, is the victim of an acute security crisis which has lasted more than 20 years in the east of its national territory. Any honest observer 
speaking in good faith, would acknowledge that this crisis is primarily caused by coveting its fabulous natural wealth and the ambition for power of some of its neighbors. The Congolese people acknowledges the involvement of the United Nations, the African Union, African regional communities, the European Union, and the foreign bilateral partners of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to curb this recurrent crisis. The DRC and the people of the DRC are grateful to them and we acknowledge the sacrifice of the brave peacekeepers who have lost their lives for the sake of defending the ideals of peace and justice. However, despite tireless internal efforts, a massive UN military presence in the DRC and diplomatic support for 23 years, this security problem continues to aggrieve my country. In order to eradicate insecurity once and for all, to restore lasting peace and to ensure stability in the east of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, several agreements were signed with armed groups and even with neighboring countries under the guarantee of the international community. National and international mechanisms have been created all of these prospects for a lasting settlement of the conflict only lasted for a few months. Very quickly, the architecture of those prospects cracked and the building collapsed. And then we always start again with the same tragedies. Since I was elected to lead the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I have fought tirelessly each day for peace and security in the Congolese provinces of Ituri, North Kivu and South Kivu. Adhering to a philosophy of reconciliation with our neighbours, I spared no effort to assure the heads of state of neighbouring countries and restore confidence between us, particularly through constant consultation on issues of common interest, the conclusion of security cooperation agreements and economic partnership agreements, and the implementation of development projects for our respective populations. Despite my goodwill and the outstretched hand of the Congolese people for peace, some of our neighbours could find nothing better to do than thank us through aggression and by supporting terrorist arms groups that are ravaging the east of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. This is the case currently of Rwanda, which, scorning international law, the UN Charter and the Constitutory Act of the African Union, has once again not only taken aggression in March against the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the form of direct incursions by its armed forces, but also occupies areas in the province of North Kivu via a uh, transplanted armed terrorist group, the 23rd of March movement, the M23, to whom they provide massive support both in fighting materials and also in manpower and troops, and to 
challenge the international community. The M23, with the support of the Rwandan army, even shot down a Monusco helicopter and killed eight blue helmets, and in so doing committed a war crime. In this emblematic location for international life, I tirelessly denounce this latest act of aggression uh, that my country has fallen victim to by its neighbor Rwanda under cover of a terrorist group called M23. Mr. President, the involvement of Rwanda and its responsibility for the tragedy my country is experiencing and the tragedy of my compatriots living in areas occupied by the Rwandan army and their allies from the N23 are no longer in any doubt. Since more than once, Groups, panels of experts mandated by the UN and the, joint, the expanded joint verification mission of the International Conference of the Great Lakes Region, uh, as well as international humanitarian non-governmental organizations and human rights organizations have established in documented and objective reports uh, which um, attain the highest standards of academia and science. To dispel any doubt for the community of nations and put an end to the denials of the Rwandan authorities on this subject, the Congolese government asks the President of the Security Council to officially distribute to members of the Council the latest report of the UN group of experts on the security situation in the east of the DRC and to ensure that it is considered diligently by the Council to draw the full consequences from it in the context of international peace and security. It is a question of the very image and credibility of our organization. To do otherwise would on the one hand mean encouraging Rwanda to continue its aggression, its war crimes and its crimes against humanity in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and on the other to further feed legitimate suspicion of the Congolese people when it comes to the impartiality of the UN as well as the complicity of some of its members in these crimes. It is to bring an end to this suspicion and to dispel the ambiguity of some positions of the Security Council on the security crisis in the east of the DRC, an ambiguity which is frustrating the Congolese population and exacerbating tensions between them and the UN stabilization mission uh, in the DRC, MONUSCO. It's for that reason that my government has asked for a re-evaluation of the progressive responsible withdrawal plan of this mission. This request for adjustment is required by the unanimous agreement, even at the highest levels of our organization, over the regrettable shortcomings of MONUSCO. These shortcomings undoubtedly impact the effectiveness and the legitimacy of the UN's action in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Re-evaluating MONUSCO's withdrawal plan can consequently in no way undermine relations between my country and our organization. Whatever the case may be, I declare loudly from this rostrum at the highest international body for the management of the world's affairs, I would like to declare the determination of the Congolese people and of its leaders to always defend 
to the very last, the territorial integrity, independence and sovereignty of their country, in respect, of course, of international law and the commitments made within the international organizations that it is a member of. This is also an opportunity for me to clarify that the Congolese state and Congolese civil society will never allow anyone to engage in tribal, ethnic, racial or xenophobic hate speech in our country. The Constitution of the Republic and the laws of the DRC prohibit such speech and punish it severely. Nobody can thus claim that this discourse is happening and use it as a pretext to justify criminal adventures in the DRC, divide the Congolese people and weaken national unity, something that all of my compatriots uh, adhere to fiercely. The DRC is not and will never be a country that commits genocide. What's more? I support the fact that the alleged collaboration that uh, I would say that the alleged collaboration that some Congolese officials may have allegedly with uh, Rwandan opponent figures from the Democratic Liberation Forces of Rwanda, the FDLR, which the Rwandan leaders are using to justify their repeated aggression against the DRC, is nothing more than an uh, an alibi, which or an excuse, which is corroborated by no proven information on the ground. The FDLR has been decapitated and reduced to nothing by the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the FARDC, in close collaboration with the Rwandan army as part of joint operations conducted a few years ago. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has also repatriated several elements of the FDLR and their families. And so the Congolese people are now asking themselves, what FDLR are we talking about? What size of territory, uh, uh, occupied Rwandan territory, does this phantom FDLR occupy? What precise part of Rwandan territory has uh, anyone seen a Congolese soldier on? Whatever the case may be, the DRC remains ready to take uh, uh, action against any armed group that attempts to upset peace and security in a neighboring country in the Great Lakes region. Mr. President, the Congolese people ask the United Nations, the African Union, African regional communities and the partners of the DRC to no longer trust the shameful denials of the Rwandan authorities uh, and instead to help rebuild security, build lasting peace, and to help create the conditions needed for fruitful cooperation in the Great Lakes region for the well-being of all. To this end, it is necessary to have the following. One, bring about the immediate withdrawal of the M23 from occupied areas the return of displaced Congolese people uh, from these areas to their homes and the unconditional ending of Rwandan army support for this terrorist group according to the spirit and the letter of the Luanda roadmap 
agreed between the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda, as well as successive statements from the UN Security Council, the African Union Peace and Security Council, the uh, East African Community, and the Southern African Development Community, SADC. Two, increased pressure on Rwanda and the M23, whose leaders are incidentally sanctioned by the UN, and uh, be more firm in respect of those sanctions to ensure that they respect uh, the positions of the aforementioned international organizations. Three, support the continuation of the Nairobi peace process the Luanda discussions between the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda, and the deployment of the East Africa Regional Force, the statute and the rules of engagement of which have just been signed on the 8th of September in Kinshasa by the Congolese government and the Secretary General of the East African Community on the one hand, and on the other by the FARDC and the commanders of this regional force. Four, encourage the um, president of, uh, honorary president of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta, and the president of Angola, Joao Lorenzo, mediators from the uh, East African community and the African Union in the security crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to continue their good offices. Five, lift any obstacle to the DRC restructuring its armed forces to increase the power of those armed forces to better carry out their mission, including through the lifting of all restrictive measures limiting their acquisition of military equipment, regardless of the form laid out by the UN Security Council. Carrying out the aforementioned actions would undoubtedly ensure that the Congolese people would be certain of a settlement to the crisis and would facilitate constructive dialogue among all of the parties concerned about that settlement. Mr. President, we, the Congolese people, are now determined once and for all to put an end to insecurity in the east of our country, whatever the cost. The time has come to once and for all break the infernal cycle of violence in the east of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to stabilize the Great Lakes region so as to benefit as much as possible from its economic potential as well as from its rich biodiversity to save humanity in the face of climate change. Managing these changes raises two fundamental problems, namely the implementation of legal and financial instruments stemming from international negotiations, in particular in the context of the various conferences of the parties to the United Nations Framework Agreement on Climate Change, Convention on Climate Change, and the energy transition. It is time on the one hand to put an end to the selective implementation of commitments made by polluters and on the other hand to uh, compensate in the name of climate justice the efforts made by less polluting countries including those in Africa to preserve the environment in the interests of our entire planet. 
As for the energy transition, Africa has a sufficient wealth of renewable energy sources and raw materials which could help mobilize credible alternatives to the double energy and environmental crises. From this point of view, it is important to note that the Democratic Republic of the Congo is among the primary producers of essential strategic uh, minerals for the energy transition and for decarbonization in the transport sector, including cobalt, lithium, nickel, and manganese. My country has set itself the goal of producing these precious metals cleanly to this end. And it is with this in mind that the Republic of Zambia and the Democratic Republic of the Congo on the 29th of April signed an agreement on the establishment of a value chain in the electric battery and clean energy sector. It goes without saying, given the importance of um, of the size of the investments required by the implementation of such a project that the involvement of partners is particularly essential, particularly in terms of providing capital and appropriate te technologies. What's more, in order to support the green transformation program of economies on the African continent and to meet the growing energy demand around the world, my country has chosen to make the most of its vast potential in renewable energy sources, including hydroelectricity, solar energy, geothermal energy, and the exploitation of its gas deposits. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is an asset when it comes to implementing the 2063 Agenda of the African Union through the implementation of the Grand Inga project which could also be beneficial for part of Europe and the Middle East. It is with this in mind that we are delighted to host the preparatory work for the 27th Conference of the Parties, pre-COP27, which will take place in Kinshasa next month. Mr. President, I would like to take this opportunity to shed some light on the environmental aspects of the tender launched on the 28th of July by my country for the exploration of 27 oil deposits and three gas deposits, a call which has been um, um, unhelpfully criticized in the international arena. Here, it is worth recalling that no relevant international legal instrument ratified by the Democratic Republic of the Congo prohibits it from exploiting its natural resources for reasons of protecting the environment or for fear of aggravating global warming. Next, the 2015 Paris Agreement recognizes that developing countries have the right to emit CO2 for their development while taking precautions for the global climate through their nationally determined contributions. The government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo has thus set itself the goal of exploiting 
the country's natural resources while respecting environmental standards and processing them locally to provide extra added value and to boost the national economy, including by creating liquid uh, wealth, cash and jobs to improve the living conditions of the Congolese population. The appropriate strategies and measures have been adopted to avoid negative impacts on the environment. Like other countries in Africa and Europe that have overcome this challenge, they involve effective government checks and balances. For the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it is a question of achieving its economic and social goals whilst also preserving its forests and continuing to be a solution country when it comes to the fight against global warming. My country remains open to cooperation with any partner that would like to help it achieve its goals. On the economic front, what needs to be done is to help economies recover, the economies of countries that have been weakened by the collateral effects of climate change and the coronavirus, to promote balanced global economic growth and to halt the exacerbation of poverty in developing countries. We cannot overcome this challenge without internal good governance efforts at the national level, nor productive investments of capital nor without real and sufficient transfers of financial resources to those who need them. For that reason, the Democratic Republic of the Congo calls for the proposal for rich countries to cede a percentage of their special drawing rights at the International Monetary Fund to less well-off countries to be fleshed out. This was a proposal made by the Paris Conference on the relaunch of economies post-COVID-19 in May 2021. It was supported by a firm commitment from the G20 summit in October 2021 in Rome. In any case, any facility for access to additional resources for those countries sorely tested by climate change and COVID-19 would be welcome. Similarly, alleviating the debt burden of low-income countries must continue to be a constant concern, which should be included in a global approach of international solidarity. For its part, Despite the difficult global economic situation following the harmful effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo has made remarkable progress in economic growth. Wealth creation accelerated in 2021, particularly thanks to the dynamism of the mining sector. Production growth in that sector went from 1% in 2019 to 10.1% in 2021 following the good uh, price of copper and cobalt on the international markets. Inflation and the exchange rate of the Congolese franc have remained relatively stable. The Administrative Board of the International Monetary Fund therefore concluded favourably the second review 
of the program supported by the extended credit facility. The IMF expressed its satisfaction with the prudent macroeconomic policies adopted by the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We will tirelessly continue these policies and the effort to improve the business climate, which is currently underway, to promote private investment and to promote economic activities in general. Mr. President, solidarity and justice in relations between nations have always been factors in mutual peace and security because they bring people together and create links of interdependence between them. Therefore, the fight against poverty and promoting collective well-being are powerful sources that we can draw on to combat social conflicts and tensions between peoples. For that reason, the DRC welcomes the collective action of the international community against COVID-19 and commends the initiative of the United States of America, New Feed the Future, to finance agriculture in order to combat hunger and food insecurity in Africa following the Russo-Ukrainian crisis. And my country, the DRC, is among those African beneficiary countries, just to mention these most recent cases. My country calls for similar actions and initiatives, which not only help resolve problems of surviving on a daily basis and help create accessible jobs for a large number of people, but also help distribute uh, incomes and purchasing power. However, in the name of international solidarity and justice, we do have questions over the maintenance of sanctions against the people of Zimbabwe. These are sanctions which, what's more, date back to the era of the late President Robert Mugabe. Why is our organization so silent and so indifferent to this injustice, almost a crime, against an innocent people? As the current president of the Southern African Development Community, SADC, I firmly call upon the United Nations to do everything possible to achieve the immediate lifting of sanctions against the Republic of Zimbabwe and its people. Mr. President, in this multipolar world, no country, however powerful and rich they are, can aim to overcome the challenges that I have just mentioned alone, let alone overcome them in the interests of everyone. The importance of what is at stake, the complexity of the problems that need to be resolved and the scale of the task require an equitable multilateral approach which includes the interests of each and every one and which pools the energy of everyone in a climate of mutual respect. For that reason, the Democratic Republic of the Congo continues to think that it is essential that we better structure multilateralism and enrich it with equal treatment for all of the parties involved in order to create spaces for dialogue and cooperation 
which is something that we need in order to ensure international peace and security. That is the United Nations that we want. To do this, we need to act urgently to reform the UN, which seems to be lagging somewhat at the moment. In this context, I would like to stress the need to satisfy the legitimate and just claim of Africa to be represented on the UN Security Council with two additional seats in the category of the non-permanent members and two others from among the permanent members with the same rights, including the veto, the same privileges and obligations of the current permanent members. This is a question of justice that needs to be done to a continent or indeed to an entire swath of humanity whose role continues to grow with each day that passes in the conduct of international affairs. We Africans are firmly attached to that. Mr. President of the United Nations General Assembly, Mr. Secretary General of the United Nations, ladies and gentlemen, heads of state and government, ladies and gentlemen, heads of delegation, to conclude, allow me to say a few words about gender equality. There is a need here to stress the need to continue current efforts at the international level and within states to create spaces of gender equality and opportunities for liberty and action for women. In order to do this, the involvement of men in gender-forward policies is necessary because, on the one hand, men share their lives with women, and on the other hand, since time immemorial, for various reasons, men have established a preeminence over women which gives them a determining influence over the destiny, the fate of women we must bring an end to this de facto situation. That is why, during my term at the head of the African Union, I initiated a meeting of heads of state and government of the Continental Organization under the subject Conference of Men on Positive Masculinity. This historic meeting, held in Kinshasa in 2021, led to an African Union declaration containing commitments of men, including heads of state and government, to put an end to violence against women and girls and to provide appropriate responses to this issue. This declaration constitutes a veritable African Union charter for women, which I am working hard to make a reality as a in my role as African Union champion for positive masculinity. It's in this context that I have decided to further promote the Congolese woman who today 
increasingly occupies the foreground in the management of public affairs within political, legal and administrative institutions in my country. This proactive policy should in the future allow for radical change, not only a change in the perception of women and the role of women in society, but also in women taking charge of their own destinies. Because equality is not a gift given to women, but rather a responsibility that they must shoulder. I wish every success to the work of the 77th session of the General Assembly. Thank you. On behalf of the Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo for the statement just made, and I request protocol to escort His Excellency. The Assembly will hear an address. Oh, welcome back, and uh, that was uh, President Felix uh, Shesekede from the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, speaking at the United Nations General Assembly, a 77th session that was held uh, late last month in uh, New York City. And, uh, of course, uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our programming uh, for today. And, of course, uh, we are uh, delighted uh, to uh, be here uh, to present uh, this uh, program uh, to you on a uh, weekly basis. And, of course, um, you can have access uh, to this program uh, by merely uh, logging on to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. Uh, that's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you want to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, uh, we are here uh, to uh, bring you information and analysis uh, related to the conditions of African people uh, on the continent and, indeed, throughout the world. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music uh, of uh, John Coltrane and Eric Duffy live in Helsinki, Finland, uh, from 1961. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.